This is all my hope. This is all my peace. This is all my righteousness. And I, I truly and sincerely pray that that's exactly what each and every one of us experiences today. Uh, that through our worship, through our study of God's holy word, we leave here today with a greater sense of hope, with a greater sense of peace, a greater understanding of where righteousness is really found, understanding that it is only through the blood of Jesus. That as we anticipate Good Friday and all that this week signifies and means for us that we would truly be stirred and moved and changed by that reality today. And so I just want to pray for us as we begin our time together in the Word. Father, we thank you uh, for all that you do for us in Jesus. God, that you give us hope, that you give us peace. God, that you have given us an opportunity to find righteousness through faith. That righteousness is achieved for us attained for us by you taking away all of our sin and giving us all of the righteousness of Jesus through his blood, through his sacrifice. How we say it so often, so consistently that sometimes we fail to really stop and reflect upon what a significant gift that is. I pray in some way, God, there would be a level of awareness, greater understanding today that brothers and sisters scattered all over the world singing your praises today. God, that they're reflecting upon what it means to come before you and cry out Hosanna. To cry out for you to save us. So help this to be more than just a Sunday on a calendar or a routine that anticipates a holiday. Let it be an opportunity for us to truly worship. To prepare our hearts for what it costs to achieve such righteousness. May we be forever grateful. God, as we turn to your word, may it stir us, may it change us, may it refine us and shape us. Let us steward this time and the opportunity to study and to reflect and to read. May we steward it well, that we would hold you in the highest esteem and the highest regard. What a privilege it is to worship with your people. We thank you, Father. And we pray all of this in the strong, blessed, mighty, and holy name of Jesus, our Savior. May he be forever praised. Amen and amen. Morning, church family. <clears throat> Happy Palm Sunday. I hope everyone is doing well today uh, as we get ready for Holy Week and anticipate uh, all that is on the horizon. I want to make sure that we have a clear image in our mind of what Palm Sunday is really all about. I'm going to read for us uh, the description in Matthew's gospel of what this day really entailed. And as you all are probably familiar and aware, when you read through the gospels, it's often referred to as the triumphal entry or a description along the lines of Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And, and I'm going to read to you Matthew's account of it, uh, just so that we have a picture of what this day was really uh, about and what we're commemorating when we see these children coming up with palm branches. Uh, and then I'm going to take some time as a bit of our introduction today to also look at how people responded 
to this triumphal entry. And we're gonna look at it not just in Matthew's gospel, but we're also gonna consider what Luke and John have to say about it because I think that's gonna help set up what we wanna talk about when we get to Romans here in a little bit, okay? So uh, I don't have it on the screens. If you wanna follow along, you can. I'm in Matthew 21. If you wanna just sit and listen, you can do that as well. Uh, but I just wanna call to your mind again what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus' triumphal entry and him coming into Jerusalem and into our lives ultimately as king. Here's how Matthew writes about it. He says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, so Matthew's gospel gives us this beautiful picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king. Now, there's a lot to be said about that kingly posture. A lot of times uh, at this point in time, kings would often ride donkeys in times of peace. And so it was a gesture of humility. It was a gesture of him bringing peace, but there was no mistake. According to Zechariah's prophecy there, this is Jesus's almost coronation, so to speak, and in this opportunity to see him as king. Now, what we'll discover is almost no one in that setting and in that environment really understood it, which is really interesting. Even though they were shouting praises of Hosanna, And they were declaring, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting different scriptures, seeing the significance of it. Nobody really understood it. It's this picture of tremendous passion, tremendous devotion, tremendous worship, zeal, however you want to describe it. But nobody really grasped it. Okay, let's take a look and see how each gospel writer brings that to light. Now, I'm not going to read Mark because Mark doesn't really cover anything about people's response to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. If you look at Mark... All Mark really says is that once he got there, Jesus entered the temple, he looked around because it was late, he and the 12 went back to Bethany. We don't really see any sort of comment or description about how people responded. But every other gospel, we do. And so look at how Matthew describes it in verse 10. He says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? Right, so the people in Jerusalem hear this commotion, they hear this worship, They see all of this pomp and circumstance taking place as Jesus comes in. That was a good catch, by the way. As Jesus comes in, but they don't understand. They're like, who is this guy? Now the the crowd answers, well, this is Jesus. He is the prophet, not Messiah, not Savior, prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So it's pretty interesting. Now, if you look at Luke's gospel, I'm not going to reread all of the accounts uh, of the triumphal, triumphal entry in Luke's gospel, but notice some other reactions. Right after you see the description in Luke's gospel of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, here's how Luke picks it up. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, 
Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So the Pharisees don't understand it. Obviously, that's a theme throughout the Gospels. Right? But they look at this praise and this adoration, and they don't think Jesus is worthy of such praise and adoration. They see it as blasphemous, and so they tell Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus pushes back. No, if they were quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Right? I mean, he, he refuses to rebuke them, but then Jesus looks upon Jerusalem and he weeps. And notice some of the things he says. Right? You don't even recognize the peace that is being offered to you. You don't recognize God's coming to you. The, the city of Jerusalem, these people did not understand what was taking place. And so then you turn to John's gospel and we get one more depiction of how people responded to this. Again, according to John's gospel in chapter 12 and verse 16. Again, after you see the Hosanna, after you see the worship, the fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah, you see John say this, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So the reason I'm accentuating this in each account of the gospel is because what you have here is this really amazing depiction of, of passion, of devotion, of worship, of earnest concern, right? All these different things that are being directed towards Jesus and yet no one really understood it, right? You, you have the crowds and the disciples that don't even understand it, according to John's gospel. And then you look at Matthew's gospel, they see him as a prophet. You have the Pharisees that don't see it. You have the people of Jerusalem that are sitting there uh, saying, who is this person? And Jesus is weeping for them because they can't recognize God's coming to him. And so what we have here is a great illustration that, in my opinion, anticipates so much of what we're gonna talk about today from Romans chapter 10. You have this picture of passion, you have this picture of devotion, of zeal, but zeal without knowledge. And as we will see, and as we all know, as the week unfolds, we know where that leads. That the people there came to Jesus, they came to this moment, they had this passion, they had this devotion, but they didn't have knowledge. And as a result, those shouts of Hosanna changed to crucify, right? That, that moment of adoration changed to execution. And that's what happens, right? And part of what Paul is going to uh, caution us against and warn us of and that we're gonna have a chance to really reflect on this, this morning is the importance of seeing zeal with knowledge, right? That part of what Paul is is arguing for and anticipating in his context is that the Jews, once again, they have a zeal, they have a passion, but they don't have knowledge. And so today is an exploration to understanding why that's so important. And in many ways, today's message can kind of serve as a preview for the upcoming series, right? We're gonna finish our journey uh, for the next few weeks in Romans. We won't finish Romans, but we're gonna be in it for at least through Easter and then Commitment Sunday the following week. And then we're gonna get to our series on knowledge, truth, 
is really what we're talking about. Because as we've talked about trying to live courageously and that that's what we want to kind of focus on throughout the year, part of what we've got to see is that 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 courage, that zeal, if you will, has to be anchored in truth. When you have zeal and and you don't have knowledge, really uh, dangerous and unfortunate things can occur. And that's going to be a little bit of what we talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10, and we'll see how Paul introduces this. Now, we talked in depth last week about a summary of chapter 9 as we brought it to conclusion. And as I shared with you in that summary last week, uh, Paul's primary focus in chapter 9 was to answer that question, uh, did God's word fail? Right? He's answering this tension between uh, Jews and Gentiles and what has happened to the identity of Israel, what has happened to the identity of Jews. And so he is trying to explain it, and he is offering a very detailed explanation to it in chapter 9, 10, and 11. But he's doing so in chapter 9 to substantiate the claim that God's word didn't fail. Right? This was always what God's word had pointed to. So he's quoting scripture after scripture. And so not only is he helping us see what the true identity of Israel is, but he's validating the fact that God's word didn't fail. And that leads to this kind of concluding quote of Isaiah, where we see the last line of chapter nine, essentially referencing to those that believe will never be put to shame. And that was our point of emphasis last week, that the value and the beauty of understanding that those who trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus do not ever have to fear being put to shame on account of that belief. And, and so it, it was a very powerful conclusion to chapter 9. And what I want you to know is that chapter 10 is just a continuation of thought. Uh, he, he is still making the same argument. Now what has happened though, and what we'll see over the next few weeks, is that it's that spirit of those who believe and who will never be put to shame that kind of is a catalyst for the beginning of chapter 10. As he starts talking about what it means to believe and to ask uh, that sort of faith through your, through your mouth and through your heart and to declare those things. And that'll be something that we talk about over the next few weeks. But he transitions with that, with that idea in mind here at the beginning of chapter 10. We're gonna look at just the first four verses and kind of focus in on this one central message today. So here's how he continues. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire in prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. All right, so uh, this is a, a short just collection of verses here at the beginning of this chapter and we really just have one primary point. So I'm gonna walk through the first three verses to set up that point. We're gonna dive deeper into it, and then we'll come back to verse four for our conclusion. But essentially, what we find here at the beginning of chapter 10 is a similar sentiment that Paul expresses at the beginning of chapter nine. He has a deep concern for his fellow people. Right? And he, he said that at the beginning of chapter nine, if I could be cut off for the sake of my people, if that were possible, I would, essentially. And now here again in chapter 10, he's saying, my prayer is for my fellow Israelites to be saved. And so part of what he's trying to explain to his readers is, listen, while I've had to just go through this uh, vivid description in chapter nine to explain why some of them are refusing to believe, why, why God has elected uh, for some of them to be excluded for the sake of the Gentiles, and he's gone into all these different things, he's continuing to reveal his heart, but I want them to be saved. That is his passion, that is his desire. 
But then he explains in verse two and three why this has become so problematic for the Jews, why it's become so problematic for the Israelites. And this is a really powerful summary that he offers. He begins by saying, for I can testify, right, that my people were zealous for God. And, and that's a really, um, I think, obvious statement for Paul because if you look at Paul's life, he was always a man of zeal, was he not? I mean, you kind of have two significant uh, stories, right? You have Saul, <laughs> and then you have his conversion to Paul. And, and yet, throughout it all, he was always zealous, but in two very different directions. And so he can empathize with the zeal that his fellow people had for God, because that was who he was when he was known as Saul. He was so zealous to the extent that he was willing to persecute fellow believers— I guess I shouldn't call him fellow believers if he wasn't a believer yet, but he was willing to persecute those who belonged to the way. He approved stoning. He pursued them to throw them in prison. I mean, he, he was consistently zealous against those people. So he understands that sort of zeal that his people tend to have and that zeal that is attached to the law and to God. To God. But then he experiences Christ. He has this conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and now he has knowledge Right now he has understanding. Now he has an awareness. And it totally changes his trajectory. But his zeal remains the same. Now he's writing even from prison. He himself has been stoned and beaten and persecuted and pursued. And yet he can't stop talking about Jesus because of this zeal. Right? And, and so you have this, this, this individual who can relate to both. He understands why you're zealous as a people, you're zealous for God, but I can also tell you your zeal is not based in knowledge. You've missed it, right? Paul's trajectory, his zeal was the same, but his trajectory changed because of knowledge. Right? That, that was the fundamental difference. And so you, you see Paul being able to relate to them and understand that, which leads him to chapter, verse 3, where he kind of gives an explanation that essentially your ignorance, your lack of knowledge, was rooted in the fact that you were trying to attain and establish your own righteousness, which is why you didn't submit to God's righteousness. And, and kind of the key words there in verse 3 are the words establish in their own, a righteousness of their own. The word established that's used here in this context, in this connotation, is not to insinuate something new being created. Right? He's not building something that didn't exist before. It's, it's a word that means to preserve something that was already in place. So when he's saying you're seeking to establish a righteousness of your own, he's essentially saying you, you already believe that you have a righteousness in place. You're trying to preserve it. And that righteousness ultimately has come through the law and, and really works in fulfilling the law in, in a works-based understanding of righteousness. And then when you pair that word established with their own, it speaks to the exclusive mindset that the Jews had, right? That this was an understanding of saying that this righteousness that God has revealed is only for the Jews. It's only for the Israelites. The Gentiles aren't a part of it. This was the whole concept of, of the Judaic way of thought at this point in time, right? That we get to preserve a righteousness by works through the law that is just for the Jews. And Paul is saying that is a zeal based in ignorance. It is a zeal that is not based on knowledge. And so a couple of things that, that I want to highlight as we reflect upon that and really dive into that and why that's such an important thing for us to consider. Let's first of all understand a few terms. 
Okay, let's, we've, we've, you've heard me say it numerous times already just by reading the verse, zeal. Okay, zeal is easily defined as kind of an earnest concern for something or a deep devotion, like a passionate commitment. I think you all could probably picture or imagine somebody in your life or a figure that you know that is zealous for something, right? We know what zeal looks like and that sort of passion. Knowledge, I think, is really important for us to understand in this conversation as well. So when you think about the term knowledge, it is in its basic level means to understand information, right? To, to have some sort of uh, awareness and understanding, comprehension. But Greek and Hebraic understanding of that term was very different. And, and that's important for us to consider when we think about the fact that this letter is being written to both a Jewish and Gentile audience. They would have different kind of uh, perspectives on the term of knowledge. From a Greek standpoint, knowledge was, again, understanding information, understanding uh, an awareness and things along those lines. But in the Greek world, you would use every capacity, you would use all of your senses to gain that sort of knowledge. So you would use the sense of, of hearing and feeling and uh, experiences and conversation, all those different things. But the one that they elevated above every other one was sight, that you could verify it by that which was observed, okay? And, and so that was a big part of how you attained and obtained knowledge. Hebraic understanding of knowledge is very different. To the Jew, knowledge was really about knowledge of God, knowledge of who he was, knowledge of his character, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his plan. And so the emphasis in the Judaic mindset of knowledge was really on hearing more than seeing. And so two very different concepts. Now, I think both of the audiences, right, both Jew and Gentile that are receiving this letter can interpret what Paul's saying from, from those points of view, right? A zeal without knowledge that, that the Greeks, they needed to experience, they needed to see and understand what Jesus had done. They needed to see the effects of it in the church and in the apostles, but for the Jews, what he's trying to say here is what you've missed is God's heart, his character. He never intended for you to try to earn this righteousness through the law. You've missed who he is. You've missed his plan. You've misheard his word, right? And so when we talk about zeal without knowledge, we're talking about an inability or a failure to understand God's heart and how he has revealed his righteousness through Jesus, Right? That's what Paul is really trying to say. And so what has happened for the Jew is they have this zeal, but they don't have this knowledge, and it has become incredibly problematic. And I would tell you it is a problem that existed not just in Jesus' time, not just in Israel's time, but it exists today. Which is why I want to stop for a moment and really just reflect upon that reality and the weight of understanding of what it means to live a life where you have zeal, but you don't have knowledge. It's pretty important, especially if we've declared that our theme for the year is to live courageously, right? Because one of the most dangerous things we could do is become a courageous people without knowledge. And the reason that's dangerous is because here's how I would describe the effects of a life that has zeal but no knowledge, right? I, I, in my opinion, just kind of thinking through it and reflecting on it, there's three words that I would offer for us this morning. A life that is zealous without knowledge is a life that is ultimately distracted, is then destructive, and then is desolate. I got all three Ds. I worked on that, right? It took me a while, but I got it. But it's true. It's, it's distracted, destructive, and desolate. Let me, let me try to unpack that for a moment. 
When you find your zeal in something other than Christ, the righteousness that is revealed through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ, then ultimately you are committed to something else. You are distracted from the thing that God designed you to really pursue, right? And so when we get distracted by all these different things, uh, it leads us down different paths. That's what happened to the Jews, right? The Jews were distracted by the fact that they felt like righteousness could only be achieved through works in the law. They were distracted by that particular focus. They were even distracted by their concept of what they felt like the Messiah was gonna be, right? That he was gonna come and establish an earthly kingdom. So when we find our zeal redirected in anything outside of that knowledge, we are distracted from the truth. Now, where distraction becomes really difficult is that a lot of times we can be self-deceived and we don't realize we're distracted, right? We don't realize that we've bought into something that has misled us. That was true for the Jews as well. They were convinced this was truth. They were convinced of it. So they had no clue that they were missing out on it. And that happens sometimes with our zeal. We get so locked in, so distracted, we get bought into this idea of the things that we're zealous for, completely uh, oblivious to the idea that we've deceived ourselves in the process. And that can be really, really uh, concerning. Now, there are times too, though, where we can know that we've bought into something that is destructive. We can know that we've bought into something that isn't the truth, that isn't based on the knowledge of Jesus, and we still don't care. And that to me is when distraction morphs into addiction, right? And, and that can be to anything. But that's when you start saying, I know that the life I'm living uh, isn't reflective of God's plan, isn't reflective of his, of his purposes, but I don't care, right? And so there's, there's a dangerous progression that distraction can take you down. But where I'm gonna focus it on today is just that beginning place, even before it becomes addiction, where we just get distracted by buying into the wrong things. And then it becomes destructive, Right, And we see that with the Jews as well. When you finally give your zeal to something that isn't based in knowledge outside of Christ and you get distracted by these other things, it's ultimately going to be destructive. It's gonna harm either yourself or others or both. And we see that with Holy Week. Right? We see that where this leads, this zeal, this passion to cry Hosanna, but without any real understanding of what it means, meant that those who shouted Hosanna are ultimately going to abandon him and run from him like his disciples. The city that didn't have any understanding of who he was are ultimately going to be chanting crucify him. The, the Pharisees that were against him from the very beginning, they're going to be the ones that rally up the mob to make it all happen. I mean, all of it leads to a place of destruction and harm. And not just physical harm towards Jesus, but, but a harm for, them own, for their own selves, their own souls, their own spirituality through all of it. Right? It becomes incredibly destructive when we have zeal that is not based in knowledge. And at some point along the way, when we start to sense either the harm that we've created for ourselves or that we've created for others, what we're gonna discover along the way, even if we don't experience some of that harm or we continue to deceive ourselves and don't even recognize that we're distracted, don't even recognize that we've harmed others or are harming ourselves, at some point, we're gonna have that inevitable feeling of being empty. And that's where the desolateness comes in, right? That whatever we have become zealous about or passionate about hasn't fulfilled us. See, the, the whole concept here is that if there is a creator, which we believe there is, he has designed each and every one of us for a particular plan, for a particular fulfillment, not, not individually, but for all of us to ultimately understand Jesus and to be restored to relationship with God the Father. 
And so if we miss that, anything less than that may give you momentary experiences of joy, may give you momentary and fleeting experiences of happiness, but in the end, it's going to leave you empty. The only thing that fulfills is a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So zeal without that knowledge leads you to emptiness. Right? And so, so with all that being established, where I want to take some time and again dive into a little bit further, is to ask the question, where today do you see this as a problem in either your life or in culture? Like start thinking about examples. I'm going to offer a few, but, but I want you to reflect on that. Where do we see in our world today, in our culture, in our own lives, the tendency to, to find an earnest concern, a deep devotion to something, right? A passionate commitment to something that isn't based on Christ or own knowledge. And can we see these trends of it creating distraction, destruction, and ultimate feeling of being desolate? Let me give you a few, all right, for us to consider and to be on guard against. Let's start with materialism. Yeah, I think this is one that is pretty easy to substantiate in our culture. I don't think I need to bring a lot of statistics or a lot of things to justify the stance that in our culture in particular, we tend to be somewhat consumed with material things. True? I mean, it's, it's pretty rampant in our society, whether it's the accumulation of goods or things that we want to have, or it's the pursuit of wealth and luxury or money. Um, there is an overwhelming sense and obsession with money and materialism in our culture. And I wanna say this at the beginning, this does not need to be something that we're just saying is a problem for those that are wealthy, right? It's, it's not just for those that might be, great. like you can be in poverty and still be consumed with the idea of materialism and money, what you don't have, right? It can become a, a very dominant thing that we become incredibly zealous about, that we have a, an earnest, uh, commitment to or concern with. We're constantly thinking about money, worried about money, worried about these things, wanting to get certain things. We have a deep devotion to finding that sort of financial success or status or whatever it is. We have a passionate commitment to it. And that is a very harmful thing. That is building your life with a certain zeal that is not based on knowledge. And it can be destructive. Right? I did find a, a quote from a Dr. Ryan Howell who wrote an article for Psychology Today back in 2014 about the impact that materialism can have on us and on society. Here's what he says. He says, The belief that material possessions improve individuals' personal and social well-being permeates America. However, contrary to this belief, multiple studies show that materialists compared to non-materialists have lower social and personal well-being. Compulsive and impulsive spending, increased debt, decreased savings, depression, social anxiety, decreased subjective well-being, less psychological satisfaction, and other undesirable outcomes have all been linked with materialistic values and purchasing behaviors. And it harms us, right? It, it destroys us in a lot of ways, and a lot of times we don't even see it. And that destruction then ultimately leads us to a place where we feel empty. One example for the feeling of, of having kind of that sense of emptiness, even though you may acquire so many things, uh, I want to draw from an example from a recent documentary that I watched, uh, Full Swing. Anybody else in here seen Full Swing recently? Any golf fans? Thank you, Clay. Got you, brother. Um, there's a couple others. Uh, so I, I, don't, I can't necessarily condone it or endorse it because there's some profanity. But 
all that to say, it's, it's an interesting documentary series that highlights the lives of different pro golfers. Each, there's like eight episodes, and they highlight different, uh, you know, stories that take place for these different golfers. And the one story that really stood out to me, and I've shared this with a couple of folks, was the one on Brooks Kepka. And if you are familiar with Brooks Kepka, he was uh, not too long ago on top of the golf world, winning major after major, uh, was the number one golfer. And a lot of people were like, this guy's never going to lose. He's just dominant. And he seemed to just do it with ease as well. Well, he's been in a bit of a slump. And he hasn't won in quite some time. He's, he's, he's played worse and worse and worse. And so one of the episodes fixates on, on his story based on how he's handling uh, this recent downturn in his success. Now, I want to clarify this before I use this to illustrate this point, that uh, I'm in no way trying to judge the man. I don't know him. I don't know his spiritual state. I don't know anything about him. This is really just a, a sliver and a glimpse of a particular story that caught his life in one, one moment. And I realize documentaries can like catch you on a bad day and all that other stuff. So I'm just extracting it to make a point today. But it highlights him and, and you see just how disgruntled he is and all these different things, how he's struggling. And it was so interesting to me because when they, when they show you his life, he's got this incredible house in Florida. I mean, just this mansion that is incredibly beautiful. He's got this supermodel wife and the dude plays golf for a living, right? Like that's what I, I want to do on my day off. And he does it for a living. He's made millions of dollars, won numerous majors, and he's miserable, literally miserable. And if there isn't just a depiction that says money doesn't buy you happiness, I don't know what else there is, right? And again, maybe it caught him on a bad day, but my point is this, you can be zealous about this success, these accolades and all these things, and in the end, it is destructive and it leaves you feeling desolate. Let me give you a couple others, right? Materialism would be one that we wanna guard against that we often find ourselves being zealous about. A couple others would be uh, some things that we see in our world today like conspiracy theories. When you start talking about knowledge and, and being zealous for truth and knowledge, uh, I think we need to acknowledge that yes, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time, uh, but they have ramped up with the accessibility and the proliferation of the internet and misinformation, we are seeing this time and time again. Now, I probably will dive into this subject in this category in greater detail during our truth series. I'm not gonna go into it in, in great detail today, but here's my point in, in trying to accentuate this today. You see it across all demographics, you see it across all political parties, but what happens is, is that there are these conspiracy theories that essentially uh, give you this idea, this, this, this thought that something has happened. And one of the ways that they work is there is no evidence. And oftentimes it's the lack of evidence that they use as evidence. Right? So it's like, well, you can't prove that it didn't happen. And, and because there is no evidence, that means it was covered up, right? And people are buying into this over and over again. And the reason I'm pointing it out today is because what we're seeing with increasing concern is the zeal that is attached to that lack of knowledge, right? Where you can find some really tragic stories out there of people that have harmed their own family members or strangers that have harmed other strangers because they became so convinced of something and became so zealous about something but it was not based in knowledge, it wasn't based in truth. And it led to destruction and a feeling of emptiness. Some of the obvious things that we have to guard against when we think about where our zeal goes towards are things that bring us joy and passion, like hobbies 
indulgences, pleasure, right? And there's a long list of things that this might include. I, I decided to just extract a few of them today and brought some statistics to kind of verify this. But we get passionate about a lot of different things. We get passionate about sports, music. Uh, we get passionate about lust. It's going to be the word that I use because we have younger ears in here today. We get passionate about alcohol, drugs, these things that make us feel good in a moment. Let me quantify for you the level of zeal that our culture and this world often has for these things. Uh, the sports world is a $500 billion industry. It makes everything else I just read on this list, it dwarfs them in comparison. So before we say, oh, it's just a hobby, Oh, it's just something I kind of do on the side. It is a $500 billion a year. And you don't achieve $500 billion without zeal, right? And yet how many stories of athletes or coach, whoever spend their whole life on this thing and only to arrive at one point to go, is that it? That did not bring the fulfillment that I thought it would. You could talk about music being a $26 billion industry. Lust is one that I wanted to accentuate because $97 billion industry, again, I'm just using that term for the sake of younger ears, but here's a statistic from Fight the New Drug that I thought was pretty concerning. This is based on 2019. 5.8 billion hours of lust were watched in 2019. That is the equivalent of 665 centuries of content. That's the sort of zeal and passion people are allocating to those things. They're distracted, and it's causing major destruction, and I guarantee you it's leaving feelings of emptiness. Alcohol and drugs is a $100, $150 billion a year industry. We could have numerous stories of how those things have ripped, a lot, ripped apart the lives of loved ones and family members and friends. We get distracted by these things because we think they make us feel good in the moment, but they ultimately just do harm and leave us empty. Last one, and then we'll transition. Uh, the other one that I really wanted to emphasize too today that I think we can often devote our zeal to is ideologies. And I've talked about this before too, and I think this is something we really have to work uh, tirelessly on in today's context as Christians. Ideologies that can exist both in the political and religious world. Right, so, so what has happened is we will find a political party or an issue or cause that we become incredibly zealous about. We will have an earnest concern for it, a, a passionate commitment to this particular issue or this particular party or idea. Right? And, and what happens in the process, even if it's something good, even if it's something that we need to consider, like poverty alleviation, is that we can oftentimes, even in the spirit of something we think is good and beneficial, become so convinced that this is the one thing that matters and it consumes our zeal and it ultimately distracts us again from what true knowledge is, which is salvation through Jesus Christ and righteousness by faith. And that, that context today where we're so divided politically when we align ourselves and our zeals are attached more to a political ideology or a particular issue, man, it's creating division. It's, it's pulling us apart. People are leaving churches over political affiliation. Right? It's, it's, it's really concerning. And it's not just confined to the political world. We see it in the religious world. Right? Where how many times are we seeing churches or pastors or people use the pulpit as a platform for a particular issue or a particular agenda? Right? We have particular Pieces of doctrine that we just become so obsessed with, so dedicated to, that that receives our zeal more than Jesus. 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't think about these things. I'm not saying we shouldn't concern ourselves with these things, both religiously or politically. But we have to evaluate, where is my zeal? What am I really devoted to here? Jesus or an ideology? Right, so, so zeal without knowledge, hopefully I've shown you, even in our context today, is very concerning. And we have to be vigilant about it. Now, before I transition this to, chapter, to verse four, one final comment that I wanna say is that I think Paul, in what we need to do when we, re, when we read this, is really reflect upon the fact that zeal and knowledge need to go together. That, that it's not just a problem when it's zeal without knowledge. But actually, one of the, I think, is probably the greater concern for churches today is when churches become a place where it's knowledge without zeal. And I think that's just as much of an issue because we are some of the most informed believers in the history of the church. And we go to Bible study after Bible study. We got BSF on Monday and Beth Moore on Tuesday and then our D group at church on Wednesday. And like we have filled our week. We got every translation. We can read it in the Greek. We can read it in the Hebrew. We got all the knowledge in the world and no zeal. We've treated church like a habit. We filled up our calendars and our schedules. We, we struggle to find joy. We struggle to, share, struggle to share the gospel with people that need it, right? We, we kind of have this lukewarm commitment. I'll be there, but let me, let me evaluate everything else that's on my calendar. Let me, let me evaluate it. And we, we often find ourselves kind of being described as people who have knowledge and no zeal. And that needs to be incredibly concerning because what happens when you have a culture that tends to be zealous without knowledge in a church within that culture that has knowledge but no zeal. It's a really bad combination. And I think we can look around in society and, to see, and see the results of it. You gotta have both. So here's, here's my question for you this morning. Uh, what are you passionate about? Like what are your earnest concerns in your day to day? Where do you find a deep devotion? Evaluate how your life is going. Does it feel distracted? Like, are you distracted from Jesus and all that he has done for you? Can you look around and evaluate your relationships, your, your physical health, your overall emotional well-being? Does it feel destructive? Do you have feelings of just emptiness? Like if you're, if you're dealing with those things, then we need to reevaluate, have I really given my commitments and my passions to the wrong things? Am I building my life upon something other than Jesus? It is so incredibly beautiful and powerful when we find zeal with knowledge. Paul being one of the first examples, look at his fierce commitment, his, his deep love for his own people that would never waver, his willingness to face the most fierce and intense persecution for the sake of the gospel. How do we do that today? What, what do we do differently to make sure that we embody that as a people in today's world? I think about a couple of examples that have inspired me. Pastor Emmanuel in Sierra Leone, I've told you his story, his testimony before. Man, this is a church in the middle of West Africa. It's a cinder block church with a sheet metal roof. He's a bivocational pastor because they don't have enough money to pay him. They barely have any sort of money. It's less than 100 members. You compare their church to ours, and it, it's got fewer people, smaller budget, 
smaller facilities, all these different things. And when I met him, that church, because of their zeal and because of their knowledge, had planted 40 churches in the northern regions of unreached people groups in Sierra Leone, and in that year alone had seen 500 baptisms. That's what happens when you have zeal and knowledge. I think about Pastor Daniel. And Pastor Daniel in India, who saw orphan after orphan, and it wasn't just like, hey, we should try to find three families, but literally built like a dozen orphanages in eight different locations and helped hundreds of children. He's the one that, that saw his own people that didn't have scripture in their own language and took time to make sure it got translated into their language, partnered with the Jesus film, and saw the gospel spread amongst unreached peoples in India. It was passion, it was zeal with knowledge. And I'm so inspired by people that live that way. And I see the embers of it in our church and I want God to set it ablaze. So how does he set it on fire for us? How does he set it on fire for us in our own lives and within the context of our church? Here's how I'll close, right? Essentially verse four, I think gives us the answer to it. Right, what, what Paul says is that Jesus was the culmination of the law so that all who would believe in him, right, might find this righteousness. That's the paraphrase of it. Now, that word culmination could be translated a couple different ways. In the ESV, it's translated as end. In the NIV, it's translated as culmination. And there's a lot of debate amongst scholars. Well, what do we mean by this? Was Jesus the culmination, the fulfillment, the purpose of the law? Or did he end it? Like, was it a termination, saying the law didn't necessarily matter? You could really interpret it both ways. Uh, most scholars would say both interpretations are justified, but where I lean and several others that I read lean based on the context here is that it's to say that Jesus is the end of the law. And here's what they mean. That essentially what in this context of chapters 9, 10, and 11, what Paul is emphasizing over and over and over again is that the Jews had it wrong. So Jesus isn't the fulfillment of the Judaic idea of the law. He has ended the idea that you can achieve your own righteousness. Right? He's put an end to that. He has shown us that this righteousness comes through faith. It has been purchased by his blood. The weight of trying to find your own righteousness, your own fulfillment, your own meaning, your own satisfaction, Jesus did away with it and said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give your souls rest. And that's what I want us reflecting on as we go into this week of Easter. That when we have our zeal attached to all these wrong things and we're distracted and we find ourselves hurting ourselves or other people or we find ourselves in this midst of feeling empty, that effort to try to bring that fulfillment, it's ended. You don't have to carry that burden. Jesus has achieved it for you. He has brought in a new era. He's brought in new grace new mercy, new hope through his blood that a righteousness comes to those who believe in him. So give him your heart. Give him your passion. Give him your commitment in every single fiber of your being, every single moment of your life. He is your king. Let's be zealous for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are so grateful for the gift of Jesus who comes in not only into Jerusalem but into our very hearts as king. God, we confess there are so many times in our life
we offer our commitments and our passions to things that are less than what you want us to. God, that we get distracted. God, that our lives can be destructive and oftentimes we feel empty. Help us, God, to not be people who are zealous in a way that is not based on knowledge, but help us to be zealous for you as our king. God, help us to see and to hear who you are and what you've done, what you are doing, that our lives could be an unending declaration of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that those would not just be empty words, but that we would fully understand them in the spirit of what has been achieved for us. God, for us to fully recognize your lordship, there is nothing else in this world that should take precedence over you, or priority over you. And God, in, in that devotion, in that zeal and our passion for you, may we move with love and compassion, not in anger and hostility. Let us move in a spirit of truth and love so that this world can see the beauty of your church coming to life, being zealous for her King. May we declare that today and offer you the praises that you so richly deserve. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.